Hi, I'm Kelly Cervantes, and this is Seizing Life, a bi-weekly podcast produced by Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy, Cure. Today, I'm excited to welcome Sherry Brady to the podcast. At three years old, Sherry's daughter Lauren was diagnosed with Rett syndrome, a rare neurological disorder that affects brain development and can result in a number of different impacts, including seizures. In addition to providing the best life possible for Lauren, Sherry raises awareness and funds for Rett syndrome and is currently the Southern California Regional Rep for RettSyndrome.org and is also a parent volunteer for the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles Rett Clinic. Lauren is now 23 years old. So for the past two decades, Sherry has been navigating the healthcare system, including physicians, therapists, state services, insurance companies, and support groups as a black woman with a special needs child. With recent events in the US bringing attention to the issue of race and inequalities in the country, Sherry wrote an essay reflecting on her experiences within the healthcare system, which I posted on my blog. Sherry is here today to talk about those experiences and her thoughts on how we address this. Sherry, thank you so much for joining us today. I think this is just such an important topic for us to address. However, first, I want to learn more about you and Lauren and how epilepsy first entered your lives. Well, it, it was one of those days. Um, it was those early days of still trying to find um, what was going on with Lauren. I, I mean, at that point, I knew something was going on. Her development had sort of plateaued. Um, things were happening that shouldn't have been and things weren't happening that should. She was my first child. And how I was old going, was she at the time? It had to have been a, right around a year because 18 months is when she got her official diagnosis and it was prior to that. So this must have been right around a year. Um, she was at daycare um, and I got a call. I was on my way to pick her up. Um, but I got a call saying, you know, hey, Lauren's doing something strange. We don't really know what, um, but you need to get here and you need to get here fast. Um, and of course, I probably broke all speed limits and, you know, rules of the law to get to the uh, daycare as quickly as I could. And she just was kind of shaking and just clearly was not herself. So took her to the hospital. They eventually said, okay, we think this was a febrile seizure. Um, again, I knew something, some other things were going on with her, but I didn't have an official diagnosis yet. So the hope was this was a one and done. This was just, she happened to be sick. She happened to get a high fever and this was the end result. And so that got put on the back burner and I moved forward with, with trying to get an overall diagnosis for her. Um, like I said, at 18 months, that was the first time that someone said they thought, a doctor said they thought she had Rett syndrome. Can you explain yes. what Rett syndrome is for us? Sure. So Rett syndrome is a neurological disorder. It affects, the way I describe it is basically it can affect a person from head to toe. Uh, I used to say affects girls because we, it was always thought that it was primarily girls that, that had Rett syndrome because it's on the X chromosome. It's a mutation on the X chromosome. So the thought was that boys typically did not survive. Um, we are now seeing that there are lots of boys um, that are being now diagnosed with Rett syndrome. Um, some of them, it's, they just had a different diagnosis or an incorrect diagnosis, but with progress in science and, you know, diagnoses and all that type of thing, we're, we're actually finding more and more cases. So what ends up happening is 
just depending on where that mutation is on that X chromosome and how many quote unquote affected X's are turned on and how many of the uh, non-affected X's are turned on will determine the extent to which Rett syndrome can affect the individual. So Lauren kind of falls right in the middle. Uh, she can walk with assistance, but not on her own. She has some hand use, but not really functional. So she can't comb her hair um, or tie her shoes and those types of things. Um, she is unable to speak, but most definitely can communicate <laughs> with her eyes, with her body, with, with her sounds in, in many, many ways. Uh, sometimes she communicates things I wish that she didn't, but <laughs> including like, oh my God, mom, will you stop? Um, but uh, amazing personality, really, really smart, um, and just an amazing person overall. So, you know, thankfully, there's some things that Rett syndrome um, has not taken away from her, and, and I love that. Unfortunately, epilepsy is part of how Rett syndrome can manifest itself in an individual. So there are several um, of the individuals that have it that also develop seizures at one point in time. So after that first febrile seizure, a few years later, um, it had to been right around three because we were, Lauren was in school and we were on a field trip and I was that mom that I went on every field trip. <laughs> so I was on the bus with her and all of a sudden, I don't know how I knew that it was a seizure, but I knew that that's what it was because I don't think I'd ever seen one other than AB on TV prior to that. Um, but it felt like forever. I'm sure it was probably only about 30 seconds. Um, we were at the Natural History Museum in LA on a bus, on a school bus. I got a ride, we got to the hospital, um, and that started the process. I mean, obviously not right then and there did we have the official diagnosis of epilepsy, but it began the process. And, you know, unfortunately, um, those episodes continued um, and medication needed to be started. And that's kind of the road that we've been on ever since. So you receive, you know that Lauren has Rett syndrome and the seizures start to have a larger effect around the time that she's three, but she's now, correct me if I'm wrong, she's 23, correct? Yes. And so I want to chat about the essay that you wrote for my blog. Um, in the essay, you spoke about the challenges of being Black, a woman, and having a special needs child and sort of this, these cross-sectional identities where you have experienced discrimination or uh, been treated differently. Can you talk about some examples or, or different times that you've experienced this? Uh, well, I have to say, I mean, the good news is there haven't been a lot of blatant um, experiences. It, uh, most of the times it's those things where after the fact you realize, hmm, wait, would that have happened if not for <laughs> what we look like? So uh, for instance, um, you know, a teacher or, or a doctor saying something, you know, seeming to be overly surprised that Lauren is well cared for and well kept and clean. Um, and I'm like, well, yeah, of course she is. Why? Why do you, did? Why do you seem like you think that she wouldn't be? Um, and to some degree, I you know I try to convince myself. Well, maybe that's just about the fact that she has a disability. Um, but I know I you know because 
I've seen it in other parts of my life. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I have to acknowledge after the fact, even if I don't in that moment, um, that there is that bias there. I mean, you know, am I saying that all these teachers and all these the doctors that have said something like that are blatant racist? Absolutely not. Uh, you know, but is there a bias there? Do they have an assumption um, about, you know, children um, that are black or people of color and how they're being taken care of. Absolutely, I believe that that's there. Um, a lot of the other things are more me knowing that I need to be proactive because of what I know exists. So I know that there are disparities in healthcare uh, as far as what's provided depending on where you live and what you look like and what hospital you go to. So I have to go out of my way to make sure that I'm taking Lauren. I may not be able to just go to the, the closest local hospital or doctor because I know they're not gonna have what Lauren needs. Um, and to your point, like, I'm, gonna, I'm, wanna, mm -hmm. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm always fascinated by the different studies going on. And I know that Lauren had the opportunity to be involved in a study at USC. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what they were looking at? Uh, what they were looking at was um, children with special needs that, that were African-American and how that affected basically how they moved through life. How did they, you know, was it harder to get care? Was it harder to get services? Was it harder to have doctors listen to you and, and believe you and, you know, do what it was that you were asking them? And, um, you know, there, there was a wide variety of, of, families that participated in, in age and diagnosis and, and where we lived and all of that. But so many of the stories were very, very similar, uh, which was sad. And that was that, yes, in various areas, there was a struggle. There were those questions of, are you asking me this? Are you not doing this? Am I having to fight for this because of what I look like? Um, and, you know, in many cases, you had to believe that that's exactly what was going on and address it, fight for it, move past it, deal with it, you know, whatever the case, because at the end of the day, you know, part of it being that we were just families that were willing to participate in a research study kind of was an indication of who we were as people, but all of us were kind of like, and yeah, and we fought for it. And the end result was my kid got what he needed, but you know, I, I, that just was because of who we were and how we were as parents. Um, but realizing, as I mentioned earlier, that's not always the case. And, and sadly, probably more often than not, that's not the case. That's not the end result. You know, even just as women, um, you know, women of color going to the hospital for or going to a doctor's office with a pain or an ache or something that truly is some life-threatening, you know, illness, uh, but whether it's in child care, you know, having a child or, or just any other health issue is pushed aside and, you know, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. And so again, I overcompensate. So I go into doctor's appointments, making sure that I know everything there is to know so that they take me seriously. So they listen to what I'm saying. And so that they see me as an equal partner in figuring out what's best for Lauren. Um, there was a, an example of a doctor that she went to early on before she was officially diagnosed um, with GERD. Um, 
I realized in the first few um, appointments with him, it was like, okay, in his head, he had made up his mind that if you have, you have to have these particular symptoms in order to be diagnosed with reflux. Lauren wasn't doing that, but I had also done my research and I knew what she was doing and I knew that that's what she had. Um, and so I was able to push and push and push. He finally, you know, in a very condescending way, kind of said, okay, fine, we'll do the study just, you know, basically to prove me wrong. I know that's what he was doing. Um, turns out, <laughs> surprise, surprise, Lauren had reflux. Um, and afterwards, he kind of asked me, well, you know, does she have, I mean, do you have a medical background? And I'm like, no, I'm a mom and I've done my research and I care about my child and I want answers. But you couldn't hear that before. Yeah, we had to go through all of this in order for you to respect what I'm saying to you and hear the input that I was giving you. Um, and, you know, again, can I prove it? But no. Um, but do I think that there was definitely a bias there of him not, you know, believing me? Absolutely. And I have to say that that, so there's a, a phrase that a friend of mine taught me very early on, which is just have the fight that, you know, just sort of teaching me that the, the doctors aren't necessarily always right. And you know your child better than anybody else. So, you know, make sure that you have that fight. However, at no point, and, you know, this is my unawareness of my own privilege, did it dawn on me that I was not probably needing to have the fight or um, when I did push back, I was listened to significantly more than perhaps you would be in that same situation. Right. right. Hi, this is Brandon from Citizens United for Research in Epilepsy, or CURE. For the 65 million people worldwide living with epilepsy, progress is unacceptably slow. At CURE, our mission is to find a cure for epilepsy by promoting and funding patient-focused research. Learn more at cureepilepsy.org. Now back to this episode of Seizing Life. So you talk about these comments that you receive that are, are sort of backhanded compliments, perhaps right. is the best way. In those moments, how do you handle that? So if, if, you know, another mother who is in your position, what is your recommendation to them? How, how do you respond? It's really a case by case scenario type of situation. It, it, as, as with anything <laughs> when it comes to dealing with Lauren and other people. Um, it depends on what mood I'm in. It depends on what we're currently dealing with um, as to whether I'm going to choose to make that a teachable moment, um, whether I'm so upset that I don't say anything because I know this is not going to end well for probably either one of us, and I'm going to say some things that I probably shouldn't say, so let me, it's best for me to just not say anything. Um, and then sometimes it's, I may not say anything right then, but I definitely, well, usually most of the time, I definitely will follow up. So for instance, um, you know, like I said, there's been times where in the moment, either I'll say something offhanded or draw their attention to it. They get it. I guess, you know, especially if I feel comfortable with the person, because again, a lot of these things, I don't think they're intentional. I think they're just, you know, this, this bias that's there and people do and say things that they don't even realize that they're doing and saying. So, you know, I'm going to address it. I'm going to, you know, call it out. We laugh about it and move on. Um, other times when I think it is um, 
you know, a bigger problem, I'm going to address it a little bit more seriously, like I said, either in the appointment or in that initial meeting or after the fact. Um, and then there's those times when I just do have to go there. I mean, there was a time when Lauren, um, I had to take her to the emergency room. She was having some pains off and on that I could not figure out what they were. Um, but every time I finally got a doctor's appointment for her, of course, she was fine during the appointment. Um, so, you know, surprise, surprise, all the tests came back normal. So this time I said, okay, she's having these pain episodes right now. Let me take her to the ER right now so they can do the test and we can see if there's anything going on in the moment when the pain is actually happening. Um, so we did all that. The tests were done. Um, of course, they had had to put tape on her for IVs and all the different things that they had attached to her. And it was time to take all of that off. Um, a nurse walked in and I asked him for the adhesive remover so that I could take the tape off because I know my child has very sensitive skin. You can't just pull, even if it's a simple Band-Aid, I don't pull anything with adhesive off of Lauren's skin without adhesive remover because when I've done it before, there's been a reaction, anything from just slight redness to actual bleeding. So I know, I know my kid. So I'm asking him for this. He's like, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not really needed. You know, we, you know, what are you talking about? You can just take it off. I said, no, I need it. You know, there was a back and forth. Next thing I know, this hand is coming toward my child. And the words that were, it was all kind of slow motion. I think like the words that were coming out of his mouth is, see, all you need to do is, and he was about to rip the tape off of her arm. Um, so I hit his arm away immediately told him to leave, immediately called for supervisors, immediately asked for the doctor. And not only did I address it and deal with it in that moment with anybody and everybody that would listen, including him, because I gave him a piece of my mind before I told him to leave. But I followed up with a letter after to make sure that, you know, everybody in that hospital knew what type of person that, you know, they had working for them. And if he was going to continue to work there, he needed to never do anything like that again. So like I said, there's a range. Um, there's yeah. a range. Absolutely. Um, what about when people claim to be colorblind? At the end of your essay, you wrote, I've heard people say they don't see race or they don't see someone's disability. And in most cases, they mean well, but the answer is not to see, is not to ignore any part of who a person is. The better option is to see all of them, all of their differences, then accept, appreciate, and respect them. I love that part so much. Well, and I think, I mean, I've always felt that way even before having a child with a disability, but now, you know, it's tenfold that, you know, that's my belief. Um, you know, again, that's another one of those situations where I know what people mean when they say that. Um, but what I try to get folks to understand is it's not seeing who we are, that's the problem. It's seeing it and then making negative judgments and assumptions because of what you see. That's the problem. If you don't see all of me, if you don't see that I'm a woman, if you don't see that I'm black, if you don't see, you know, then you're missing part of who I am as a person. And we're all different. We are made up of our life's experiences and you know all those different parts of ourselves and so how can you truly appreciate and know me if you're blocking out seeing part of who I am um, and you know the same for Lauren I mean you know obviously you know Lauren rolls up in a wheelchair so you can claim you don't see her disability but obviously you do just like obviously you see the color of my skin um, 
But if you don't acknowledge that Lauren has Rett syndrome and all of the challenges that come with that, if you don't acknowledge that Lauren has seizures and deals with that in an amazing way on a daily basis, then you're not giving Lauren all the credit and the glory of being who Lauren is. Um, and so, you know, how is that a good thing? Um, like I said, I think the focus needs to be on seeing people for who they are um, and accepting and respecting and, and hopefully, you know, celebrating those differences because how boring would this world be if we were all exactly alike? How do we approach raising awareness and educating uh, perhaps within the special needs community, but, but certainly outside of it as well when it comes to the differences that our, our, the Black special needs community is facing? Well, I mean, I think the first step is, is kind of what was behind what I wrote, um, which was, as you said, you know, we fight for inclusivity. We want our kids to belong. We want them to be accepted. And as a special needs parent, I would hope you don't have to experience Rett syndrome and you don't have to experience having a seizure in order to empathize with my child and what she deals with on a daily basis. You, don't, you should not have to have a firsthand experience with something to hear that person and say, wow, you know, okay, I hear what you're saying. I believe you. And how can I help? How can I be, you know, a part of the solution and not a part of the problem? Um, and so that to me is the first step, especially as special needs parents, but kind of the world in general is you should not have to have a firsthand experience to be able to empathize with something that's, you know, and again, I'm not saying understand, I'm not saying accept, you know, just accept it, but at least hear me and believe what I'm saying and have some empathy for what I'm telling you is my experience if you look through the eyes of a person of color and realize that my freedom, my existence, my right to vote, my has all needed to be legislated. Like that should have just existed when as a person you are born and put on this earth and live where you live. Yeah. But it needed to be legislated. <laughs> um, that's, I mean, that's huge. I mean, that's, you know, again, when you kind of yeah. stop and think that that's how someone is living, even though you've never had that experience. Um, but it's also when you're around friends, acquaintances, coworkers, or what have you, and they're saying and doing things that you know are not right, that you know, you know, um, are, are racist, and you don't say anything, you're a little bit complicit. <laughs> um, and I get that that's hard. Um, you know, I just said in the situations with Lauren, sometimes I speak up, sometimes I don't. It just kind of depends on the scenarios, but there's opportunities. And, you know, if you're seeking those opportunities, if you're open to those opportunities where you can speak up and you can say something, um, you know, if you work for a company or you're part of an organization <laughs> um, where you can make sure that that organization um, is more inclusive and more welcoming and more representative um, because, you know, that's, that's one of those other pieces to the puzzle. Um, you know, representation matters. And when you kind of go through life on a, on a daily basis and yeah, you see yourself in, you know, different 
whether it's on TV or, you know, in a brochure for an organization or on a website, you see someone that looks like you, that does make you feel a little bit better. It does make you feel like, you know what, they're talking to me too. Um, Mm -hmm. Where if you don't, (laughs) which is, you know, far too often the case, you can walk away thinking they're not interested in me. They don't want to know what I have to say. That's not something that's for me. Um, so, you know, making sure that we're open, um, to each other and that, you know, everybody feels welcome, not just, you know, black people, but, you know, people with disabilities, all people of color, you know, everybody. Absolutely. Uh, I do think that the answers, um, have to start from inside our community and, and I hope that, um, those who are listening or watching, uh, who read your piece on my blog, that that they can take your words to heart and can try and walk a day in your shoes and experience what it is like to be Black and have a special needs child and, and have that empathy, even though they're not in your skin. And I just am so grateful to you for being willing to share your experiences and your thoughts because I, it's just, it's so important. I don't think that we hear enough from, um, ethnically diverse voices in this community. And I just, I'm so appreciative. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for educating us and, um, please send Lauren our best. Thanks so much for the opportunity. Thank you, Sherry, for speaking about your experiences and providing your perspective on the challenges of navigating the healthcare system with a special needs child. While we recognize that everyone may have different experiences and challenges parenting a special needs child, those challenges are multiplied when gender, race, and income are factors. As we engage in difficult and long overdue conversations about race and inequality, we must also address those found in healthcare. This gap runs counter to CURE's mission and needs to be changed. We hope you will support us in our mission by visiting cureepilepsy.org forward slash donate. Your generosity is greatly appreciated. Thank you. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CURE. The information contained herein is provided for general information only and does not offer medical advice or recommendations. Individuals should not rely on this information as a substitute for consultations with qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with individual medical conditions and needs. CURE strongly recommends that care and treatment decisions related to epilepsy and any other medical condition be made in consultation with a patient's physician or other qualified healthcare professionals who are familiar with the individual's specific health situation.